You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. And I'm Jordan McGillis. Joining us today to discuss the Transportation Climate Initiative is David T. Stevenson. David is the director of the Center for Energy Competitiveness at the Caesar Rodney Institute, a Delaware-based think tank that promotes a framework of individual liberty, property rights, free markets, and limited government. Stevenson has become one of the most respected voices on energy and the environment in the state policy network. He served on President Trump's EPA transition team following the 2016 election, and he's the author of the 2018 paper titled A Review of the Regional Gas Initiative, which was published in the Cato Journal. David, thanks for taking the time to join us today. I'm happy to be here. Please don't stumble over Caesar Rodney's name. He got out of his sickbed, rode his horse 40 miles to Philadelphia to sign the Constitution to make Delaware the first state. That's why we're, that's why we're named after him. Yes, you're joining us. Here you, here you. Discussing the uh, Transportation Climate Initiative. Uh, just to start, if you had 90 seconds to explain what TCI is, just give a quick overview of what we're here to discuss today. Yes, uh, TCI stands for the Transportation Climate Initiative. It's being considered by 12 states and and D.C. to join. It is basically, at its most basic, a a gasoline tax. And uh, that tax is going to be raised until um, everybody in those states decides to buy a $20,000 premium cost electric vehicle that uses a 1,000-pound cell phone battery. the revenues will not be used for highway construction or repair like a normal gas tax. It's going to be used to give uh, subsidies, tax credits, to rich folks who can afford to buy the $20,000 extra vehicle. And then they get an extra bonus because uh, they get an exemption to commute to work by themselves in high occupancy vehicle lanes. So it's really they're 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 paying a permit fee to use the HOV lanes, and uh, maybe they'll save a little bit of carbon dioxide on the side. And where would TCI go into effect? This is a regional proposal. What's the region we're talking about? Right now, the states that are considering it are Virginia, all the way up the coast to uh, Maine. Uh, uh, so you've got most of the Middle Atlantic states. And it's, it's mostly the states that were involved in the regional greenhouse gas election, uh, uh, initiative, which was a carbon dioxide tax on emissions from electric generators. That program is a decade old. It didn't work. It didn't actually reduce uh, emissions, which is what I determined in the paper I did. And now they want to do the same thing for gasoline. It's not going to work there either. In terms of the implementation well first in terms of the adoption of tci and and likewise you could probably talk about reggie here how is it actually adopted as law is this through state legislatures are these decisions made by governors how does a state sign on legally to this agreement a little background uh The program was conceived by the Georgetown Climate Center. It's a private nonprofit. Uh, Its biggest uh, vocal supporter is uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts. Its primary funder is the Barr Foundation out of Boston. So about three years ago, they started talking about uh, doing this plan to get everybody into electric vehicles. And uh, 
they got states, uh, state governors sent uh, two representatives from each state, usually somebody from the environmental department. And they were down talking about how we were going to do this. And then finally, this past December, they actually came out with some details of how they thought this was going to work and what it was going to cost and what the benefits would be. So they have a memorandum of understanding. They are accepting public comment till the end of February. And they are expecting uh, basically the state governor to uh, say, we're going to proceed with this by April. They would sign the memorandum of understanding. The next step, there will be a model rule created. That model rule will be the basis for either legislation or an administrative procedure. Uh, that won't come out till December. Uh, at that point, the states will either pass it by the legislature or do it administratively. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, pushback on carbon dioxide taxes in states that you would think would accept it. For example, Washington, Oregon, Vermont all failed to pass taxes like this. Provinces in Canada that had accepted it, their governments were overturned. And uh, Australia, the national government, was overturned. And in France, it led to the Yellow Vest Movement. So along the way, uh, the Georgetown Climate Center was pushing that this would not go to legislatures because it wouldn't pass and that they would do it by an administrative procedure. What has happened in the last months with the opposition is that uh, they're the only state now that seems to be on, on a track to do it administratively and not take it to the legislature is Massachusetts. Uh, everybody else, uh, we've had commitments that uh, they're either not going to participate or going to participate through the legislative process, which is the right way to do this. The, 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 the way the program will work, the way the regional greenhouse gas work, uh, initiative worked, electric generators had to buy allowances to, to emit carbon dioxide as they generated electricity in the, in the participating states. The uh, uh, allowances were bought in an auction and then had to be turned in at the end of each year depending on how much emissions there were. Uh, there was a period of time when there were so many extra allowances because things were happening. The natural gas revolution uh, reduced coal-fired power plants. Emissions went dram down dramatically. And the states that were participating were unhappy with the revenue they were getting. They wanted more money. So they created mechanisms. Uh, they had a target price. And if the price went over the target price, they were going to put extra allowances into the auction. And if there were not enough, they would take allowances away. So what they basically did was sent a price signal, and that's the price that, that uh, is, is being paid now for uh, uh, regional greenhouse gas initiative allowances. They're going to do the same exact process, except instead of electric generators, uh, it will have to be the companies that own the gasoline tankers that, that take uh, gasoline from a distributor, distribution center to local gas stations. Uh, where the electric generators had a lot of capital, they had the ability to maneuver, a lot of them switched from coal, high emissions coal to lower emissions natural gas. These tanker truck owners, they have no method of reducing emissions. It's a, it's a matter of how many people are buying gasoline and uh, and uh, how, how much they're driving. So it, it's going to be very difficult for the people that are being directly taxed uh, to do anything about it. 
the tax actually will get passed along at the gas pump. So you've got governors uh, in uh, Virginia and in, in Maine and in, in Rhode Island saying, we're not going to do this if it passes on to the people at the gas tank. And then you've got other states uh, that have decided, well, we've got, uh, we want to pass regular gas taxes this year because we need highway construction or repair. And then you've got states like Governor Sununu has said, uh, forget it. We're not going to participate. We're not going to raise taxes on, on our folks. We expect uh, Governor Scott in Vermont to do something similar. So this, this seems to be falling apart. And it's a good thing it is falling apart because the people that are going to be hurt worse by this are the poor. This is the, the group here at the Georgetown Climate Center likes to talk about environmental justice and how they're going to buy electric buses and they're going to extend side, sidewalks to make it easier to, to, to walk. Uh, that's their version. It's, it's, this gas tax, if these, anybody that has a car is going to pay about $200 more a year uh, for their gasoline, and uh, they're the ones that are going to be hurt. Uh, the bottom 20% of the population in the United States is uh, only making about $14,000 a year. And they are in what's called energy poverty. Energy poverty is when you're paying more than 10% of your, your monthly income for energy. So you want to keep your house warm. You want to be able to cook. You want to be able to drive your car. Uh, every second month, 20% of the folks in the country have to make a decision to pay the utility bill or buy food or medicine. This is hurting them very badly. If you want environmental justice, look at the shale gas revolution. Natural gas, by, by being so inexpensive has not only reduced carbon dioxide emissions, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but it saved every American family about $2,000 a year. That's environmental injustice. Uh, the United States has reduced... What I see... Go ahead, George. What I see here is another, another battle in this growing uh, struggle in our country between urban dense interests often concentrated on the coast and people who live in uh, more outlying areas, exurbs and, and rural areas that utilize the automobile as their primary means of transportation. There's so much pressure these days on people to, uh, to reorient their lifestyles in order to accommodate the demands of, of the climate movement. You're exactly right. Uh, this is very much an urban uh, rural divide. You know, it is being pushed by people in the cities who a lot of them don't even own cars. They're, they're using public transportation because you, you, you can't drive a, a car around Boston or New York very easily. Uh, they're not going to be hurt by this tax uh, at all. That what they're, and then if you've got people in the uh, sub suburbs uh, who are also making higher incomes, and as I mentioned before, they get to buy the electric vehicle and uh, commute more easily by, by getting a free ticket into the HOV lanes. So you've got people in those two areas that are, that are making decent salaries. They won't be affected by this. But it's really going to hurt the rural poor. I, mean, I was testifying last week at the Pennsylvania Senate. They were considering the TCI. And it, Pennsylvania is mostly rural. 
if those figure, those folks outside of, of the major cities are driving long distances, they're getting paid less, and they're the ones that are going to be hurt the worst by this. When we talk about uh, somebody paying $200 more a year, that depends on how many miles you drive. They're the ones driving the miles, uh, and they're driving the older vehicles, and a lot of them are driving trucks because of the, the industries they work in. So they're going to be paying a lot more than $200 a year for this. And, and the senators, uh, most of the senators got that. Uh, that there were a few from the big cities who think uh, uh, that uh, global warming is this really serious crisis. My suggestion to them is, if you think it's such a serious crisis, why do you want to pursue a policy that doesn't work? You're, you're, you're just uh, doing something to, to make, make yourselves look good and feel good, but Reggie and the TCI, by, by actual practice for 10 years on the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, doesn't work. Why would you want to put money into a project that doesn't work if you really think this is serious? Yeah, I think it's important to look at TCI in terms of uh in terms of the other policies, uh, in terms of energy in the Northeast, uh, we discussed this a little bit before we started recording, but when you look at the limitations of new pipeline infrastructure, uh, the Jones Act, uh, any number of things that are raising energy costs in the Northeast, um, this would just be another thing on top of that, that like you've said, is gonna hurt uh, predominantly people in rural, rural areas uh, the poor. Just talk a little bit about just the overall desire for people to want to raise costs on energy in the Northeast and what, uh, what this looks like um, in terms of that. Yeah, you've got, as you said, you've got uh, uh, limited natural gas resources. So you, you've, uh, <clears throat> you're paying more for natural gas. Uh, you've got the Regional Greenhouse Gas uh, Initiative, you've got uh, a heavy burden of buying uh, expensive wind and solar power, uh, the renewable portfolio standard mandates are, are higher. You've got historic reasons why the Northeast and New England are higher electricity cost states. So what we see, you can, you can never say that you know, it's only Reggie or it's only the TCI or it's only the lack of natural gas, but you've got a, a, a pattern of policies that have made energy so expensive that energy intensive industries have left these northeastern states uh, where the nation goods production grew 20%. In the Reggie states, it dropped 7% over a decade. And when you lose jobs, I mean, the kind of jobs you're losing, I'll give you some examples in Delaware. We lost a steel mill. It went to uh, Oregon and Saskatchewan. We lost uh, two car manufacturers. They went to Texas and Tennessee. We lost a bleach manufacturing plant that uses an electrolysis process. That went to Louisiana. Those were seven, we lost um, uh, many other plants as well, chemical plants, and those are the, ones that are paying $75,000 a year to blue collar workers. And those jobs disappeared. In Delaware, our median household income dropped $9,500 a year between 2000 and uh, 2017 uh, because of all these lost jobs. And the same thing's happening around the country. I was in Maine a couple of weeks ago. They're having the same problem. Median household incomes are dropping. Uh, cost of living is going up. People are hurting, and and these project, these pro programs, not only do they hurt, but they are not succeeding. 
uh, Delaware with its 20% uh, requirement, Maryland with its 20% requirement for wind and solar, Maine and Massachusetts, they're only, they're only producing an average of 4% in state of the wind and solar that they're demanding. Uh, in, uh, in Massachusetts, it, it's almost all coming from Maine. In, in Maryland and Delaware, it's coming from wind, wind farms in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. So these states have these great plans, but they don't want to touch their states. Massachusetts wants to bring hydropower from Quebec. They want to bring it on transmission lines that'll tear up Maine's forest. Meanwhile, they're importing half of their electricity. Ask them to dam a river. Uh, ask them to build a power plant. They don't want to touch it. But they're very happy if, uh, and windmill, they won't even build windmills in, in Massachusetts. They're happy if they get built in somebody else's backyard. So I, I've just had it with all this. I, they're, they're, they, they can all go down a tube and the uh, power go out as far as I'm concerned, because that's eventually what's going to happen. They're just going to not have electricity. Something that we talk about a lot at IER is the impracticability of these policies and that there are so many aspects of electricity generation, of transmission, of transporting motor fuels that are impossible for central planners to take into account. And, and so these schemes never end up working out the way that they are intended to. But one thing that we should stress here, so as not to mislead our reader or our listeners, is that TCI would not only impact people in the rural areas, they're going to be hit hard, but everyone uses motor fuels, even if they're not themselves driving, because most of the products that we get are at some point transported by truck. So even if I live on the Upper East Side in New York City, the food that I eat each day is getting delivered into town uh, by an 18-wheeler, and that needs motor fuel. Exactly. Uh, eat just the normal loss, when, when you charge more for anything like gasoline or electricity, it means you have less money to spend on other things. So there are indirect costs, uh, and typically for energy products, you can add 50% to the impact, negative impact, uh, when you raise those prices in the rest of the economy. You, know, you, you get other people that are hurt, and as you said, on top of that, you're getting induced changes because everything you buy is more expensive. So it, it's just, uh, none of this works. And, and the basic goal here, they realize, the people that are purporting this thing, are realize that these vehicles are so ruthlessly expensive. You're talking about a compact vehicle, first of all, that you could buy a Honda Fit for $18,000, or you can buy the same vehicle from... Uh, Chevrolet, the Chevrolet Bolt for $38,000. Uh, it, it's just insane how expensive they are. But uh, so they say, well, we need, uh, we need uh, uh, credits, tax credits. Well, the federal tax credit dropped $3,000 last year for Teslas. Guess what Tesla did? They lowered the price $3,000. They do not need these subsidies. They're, they're just fattening their bottom line uh, by charging more than they would have otherwise. If you really want to really want to move it, let the free market work, let these vehicles compete on an even playing field, and the prices will come down. So uh, there, there's just so many 
negatives to this that uh, it, it's really frustrating that anybody is even taking this seriously. I know you've been traveling uh, in the past couple of months, you've said, for, just to educate the public, and I think you've testified a few times uh, in front of state legislatures. What's the response been from um, the public and then, I guess, from policymakers that you've spoken to as well? Uh, it looks to me like the gas, uh, not to make a pun, actually to make a pun, uh, is running out on this thing. You've got uh, New Hampshire already pulling out, Vermont probably pulling out, uh, Maine, uh, Virginia, and others saying, uh, Connecticut, we, we need to have a regular gas tax because our roads are falling apart. They're not going to pass both. Uh, you've got it down now that, except for Massachusetts, every state that had considered doing this administratively is saying we're going to do it through the legislature, which kicks, the, kicks it down the road because most of the legislators are not going to approve this. Uh, people are going to be in an uproar over a 30 cent gas tax. When, when Delaware tried to pass a 10 cent a gallon gas tax a couple of years ago, there was such an uproar it never got into the Energy Committee, let alone get a vote. So uh, what appears to be, and <laughs> the best news of all is uh, I think uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts is seeing the uh, uh, writing on the wall here because he started talking about his backup plan, which is to join with California and Quebec, which have similar taxes. Uh, the only thing maybe he hasn't thought about is the U.S. Attorney General has sued California over this very compact because it was basically a state uh, entering into a foreign treaty, uh, which is uh, not permitted in the U.S. Constitution. So there's a lawsuit going forward. So uh, I think uh, in the end, I think Governor Baker and maybe Governor Cuomo will join this, but I think the rest of the states will take a pass. And that's the smart and right thing to do. Dave, can you talk about Reggie a bit more and uh, how neighboring states that aren't part of Reggie have adjusted their policies or, or whether they've reaped any benefit because of the, the inhospitable regulatory environment um, across the border? No, it's actually, well, they've gained, uh, they've gained some business. Uh, certainly the, the, the businesses mm -hmm. that left uh, have have gone to mostly other states. They have not left the country. They've just, just gone to, to, to other states. So that certainly has been a benefit. But there's a negative. The way prices are established, particularly in the mid-Atlantic states, is there's a bidding process a day ahead and, a, and an hour ahead and five minutes ahead. And if a higher cost producer bids a high price to meet the need for that particular hour, uh, everybody in a 13-state region or all the generators get the same price. So Reggie itself has charts that showed the Reggie cost, the price of the allowances that gets passed on in the electric prices, actually raises electric prices in other states. And it's, it has cost... Uh, so far about $2 billion in other states, but Reggie is working to change their target price to quadruple it. Uh, we're looking at a potential of non-Reggie states paying as much as $16 billion over the next dec decade uh, because of Reggie prices. Uh, that, by the way, violates the Dormant Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution and I would not be surprised to see at some point a lawsuit against the Reggie states uh, passing something that uh, hurts uh, other states down, down the line.
there has been a survey done in Virginia, kind of had an interesting result. You know, a lot of people are saying they uh, want to see efforts to reduce carbon, carbon dioxide emissions. And uh, the first part of the survey by the Thomas Jefferson Institute explained what the potential benefits were and what TCI was. And 61% of the people said they would uh, uh, support such a program. Then they asked the second part of the question was, here's what it's going to cost. Support went down to 34%. Um, and uh, it, it, it happens, and that's probably high. I follow, uh, there are voluntary programs where you can buy 100% renewable power. There's also been a lot of surveys, one of the best ones from the University of Michigan, that asked people, if you could buy 100% renewable electricity, how much would you pay extra a month? And two-thirds say, oh, I'd pay 10 bucks extra a month to buy to buy 100% uh, renewable power. Well, around the country, there are uh, uh, hundreds of programs where you can buy renewables voluntarily for about $10 a month. Only about 3% of people ever sign up for one. So even that 34% number, when it actually comes to paying the money at the, uh, at the gas tank, they're not gonna be happy. You're, you're talking maybe 3% support by the time you get uh, real human actions. That's very fascinating when you draw those distinctions between people's expression of preferences and then what's actually demonstrated in practice. And one thing that Alex and I have kicked around uh, kind of as a little bit of a thought experiment is if airlines were actually to offer their customers uh, a little extra fee to offset um, their emissions from those flights. A lot of people are saying airlines should be doing this. And my thought is I'd love to see them do that so that we could have that data and see how many people actually are willing to make that simple selection of, oh, I'll pay 75 more dollars for this flight than I otherwise would need to, um, or whatever it may be. And it'd be interesting to see how people actually follow through with what they say they'd, they'd like to do. I, I, yes, I, that would be interesting. Um... Not very many people would would pay the money, obviously. The, the actual reaction of people towards these voluntary electric programs, it's covered on the uh, National uh, Renewable Energy Laboratory uh, alternative uh, fuel website, or alternative uh, electric website, and you can download the actual participation rates. Uh, if you're crazy and live in Oregon, uh, about 9% of the population agrees to it. But in most places, it's way under 3%. I, there, there are states where it's offered and there's only uh, two-tenths or three-tenths of a percent of the population signs up. So it depends partly on uh, who you're talking to. But it, it, it's the real-life example, and there are half a dozen studies, uh, like the study at the University of Michigan, that ask these, these questions on voluntary participation. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very different thing that people say versus what they actually do. Is there anything that we haven't covered on TCI here that you think is important for our listeners to know? One of the things that you hope to accomplish with higher gasoline prices is that people will drive less miles. U.S. Energy Information Agency has done a, an excellent study on that, and they determined that to get one less percent driving, 
you need to increase the price of gasoline by 25 to 50 percent. It's very inelastic. Uh, people will drive no matter what the price is. You're, you've got uh, $4.50 to $5 a gallon in uh, California, and people are still driving. Uh, right now, I'm paying $2.13 in, uh, in Delaware. Uh, there's not a lot of change in driving behavior because of the higher price. And I don't think there's going to be a I don't think there's going to be a big move to buying uh, paying twenty thousand extra for a car to move to electric vehicles. And one of the key things to remember about that is these are basically cell phone batteries. They're they're you put a bunch of cell phone batteries together and you create a big battery for a car. And as you know, these things wear out. But they also how many cell phone batteries are used around the world? It's a huge volume being manufactured. We've seen the cost of cell phones come down, cell phone batteries come down probably 80% because of economies of scale. But if you look now, that advantage is pretty much disappearing. The price of batteries has stopped falling. And that means the price of car batteries is not going to fall much in the next decade. And that's one of the things that folks like uh, the TCI folks uh, imagine having. They think prices are going to drop in half. U.S. Energy Information Agency is saying over the next decade the price might drop 5 or 10%, which I think is realistic. So these are not going to get cheaper faster, and uh, it, it's, uh, this, this whole program is just not going to work. Where can people learn more about the Caesar Rodney Institute and uh, your work in Delaware there? Yes, we're at the CaesarRodney.org is our website. That's C-A-E-S-A-R, Rodney, R-O-D-N-E-Y. Uh, a lot of this is published on the websites, uh, and uh, I'd always be happy to take uh, an email and answer anybody that's got anything to say. It's David Stevenson at CaesarRodney.org. Great. Our guest today has been David T. Stevenson from Caesar Rodney Institute. David, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for giving me the chance. This is a topic people need to know about. Absolutely.